Hello. You are probably wondering why this episode is so long. And if you hadn't noticed, this episode is pretty long. Back in December, I saw an Instagram post about a man named Evan who was in Malawi trying to raise money for COVID relief and education, but also to raise money so that children in 130 communities in Malawi have access to enough food, adequate health care and sustainable education. We decided that our next big charity drive needed to be to help Ulamu, which is the organisation set up by Evan to meet these goals for the children of Malawi. Evan was then joined in Malawi by his sister Alva, who bizarrely went to school with me and who had played Cinderella in the last musical I was ever in. I was obviously the wicked stepmother. In order to help Ulamu provide sustainable education, food and healthcare, we have donated our January 2021 ad revenue and we hope that you will be able to donate something too. We will collate the names of people that donate and pick 10 people at random to receive an item of merch of their choice. It doesn't matter if you donate £5 or £500, you could still win any piece of merchandise of your choice. All you have to do is click the GoFundMe link in the description of today's episode. It will also be on our social media channels and our website. And donate to the Ulamu GoFundMe page. You must remember to include RLGS after your name so we know that you have donated and wish to be entered into the draw. If you want to know more about Evan, Alva and Ulamu, the link is in the description of this episode or you can visit ulamu.com. The 10 winners will be picked at random and announced on the main episode on the 21st of March. The stories in this episode are adapted from a number of sources, all of the links to which are in the description, but are a combination of real-life ghost stories from both Malawi and other regions of East Africa and real tales collected by Alva that have been told to children in Malawi by their grandparents. And welcome to episode 120 of Real Life Ghost Stories. How you do? To kick things off this week, we need to thank our newest Patreon subscribers. We would like to thank Saida Khan, Natalie Solomon, Jessica Ruiz, Heather Munson, Stephanie Lorenko, Charles Thornton III, Alexa McDermott, Michaela, Jake Bradshaw, Olivia Ald, Green Queen, Gladys, Laura McLaughlin, Amy Dreyer, Ali Clark, Rebecca Mulder. Maricela Keenan Stephen Smith Reuben Henshaw and Asta Woods Thank you so much for being our Patreon subscribers. We love you and we appreciate you every single day. We surely do. We also have loads of birthdays. Well, we don't. Loads is a very, very dramatic over-exaggeration. We've got three birthdays this week. First of all, happy birthday to the lovely Sarah, who is seven years old today. Happy birthday, Sarah. We would also like to say a big happy birthday to Stuart Willis from Charlie, the kids and the dog. But obviously, most importantly, from me, Dan and Tiny Bim. Happy birthday. And finally, happy birthday to our lovely Carmen. Carmen is what I like to call the night admin on the Facebook page, which means when I'm sleeping, she's awake because of the time (laughs) difference. And she does an amazing job helping to keep the Facebook page running along with the other admins and is generally just an amazing person. So happy birthday, Carmen. Happy birthday to you. And our film review this week. Our film review is Jeepers Creepers. Jeepers Creepers was released in 2001. It has 6.2 out of 10 on IMDb and 46% on Rotten Tomatoes. Would you like a synopsis? Yes, please. Darry and Patricia are on their way back home during spring break. Their journey turns into a nightmare when they cross paths with a flesh-eating creature that is out on a killing spree. What were your thoughts on this film? My thoughts on this film were that the actor that played Darry, who I think is called Justin Long, his scared face should just be the go-to scared face if you are scared of something. It almost should replace Macaulay Culkin's two hands on face screaming face from home alone yeah it needs I, i'm surprised it's not more memeable and hasn't appeared in more memes it's a very gormless scared face <laughs> very gormless in terms of the movie itself i think elements of it hold up really well it's not as groundbreaking as i think i thought it was i think the realization that this film is 20 years old messed me up <laughs> because you know you, you think 
Oh, 2001. That's only, you know, five years ago. It's not. It's 20 years ago, just in case anyone was worried. And I remember watching this film and I watched it with my aunt. And my aunt lives two doors down from my mum, literally. And after I watched it, I nearly shit myself walking home in the dark. The the Honestly, the 30 seconds it took me to walk home, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to be attacked and eaten by a big demony thing. And you know what? For its time, I thought this film was great. Does it, is it still as great now? Probably not. But it was very scary. I think the chase element of it is really good. Like, I feel like when they're being chased, it's a, it's a genuine sort of fear of threat. And yeah, you know, the monster is ridiculous, but it still manages to keep up the scares. It just didn't move me, man. <laughs> it just didn't have the effect on me that I thought it would. I don't know if I'd kind of built it up because I, I had the realization when we were watching it. I'm not entirely sure I'd ever seen it all the way through. Um, so, and like lots of people talk about it very fondly as a movie that's freaked them out. And I get it from the, like from the chase element of it. It was quite heart racing. There were just bits of it where I was just a bit like, mm, I if, don't know. If you haven't seen it, the, the creature, whatever, whatever it is, he drives around in a big beat up old truck, like chasing people on the highway. What I like about this film is that it doesn't try and explain itself because in modern horror and demon films in particular what we get is the protagonists trying to read an old book to find out how to stop it or they go and see some wise old crone who knows how to stop it this is just we don't know what the fuck this thing is and uh, nobody can stop it sorry that's it there there it's going to get you. you you've got no choice i appreciate that I also appreciated that it didn't turn into a backwater country folk mudslinging contest in that when they first go into that diner and everybody looks at them funny, I was like, oh, they're all going to be in on it and they're going to be like feeding the monster. And actually, no, they're not. They're also being preyed on and it kind of united them and everybody kind of got behind them. People, you know, they went to the police station and the old lady protected her cats for a bit and all that, which was quite good because it's quite easy to make, I think make that story about country folk and it'd be quite insulting and it wasn't so that was good no it really wasn't and the the thing i liked about this is that the demon is sort of oddly cavalier or whatever he like what is he i don't know i mean he wears he he's he's like attitude era undertaker that eats people like that's what you're talking about this massive man with long white hair who's got a kind of a like creaturey face but wears a very fetching wide-brimmed hat and long sweeping coat. I feel like there's an element of Klingon to his face as well. Yeah, it's a very it's a very strange monster yeah. as far as horror films go. But it's a very dark film. And I think as a result of them not exploring the past, it's very easy for them to get the other two sequels out of it, I think. <laughs> I've not seen, I have to say, I haven't seen any of the sequels no, to this either. film. I also think that you need to keep in mind, I, I didn't know this before I watched it, but the director is as I found out afterwards, a convicted paedophile had no idea. Mm. And I guess it depends on how you feel about that if you want to watch the film or not. But I haven't seen the sequels, so I don't know whether they're any good or not. I know people are mixed on the sequels as to whether or not they're any good, but apparently they're remaking, they're doing another Jeepers Creepers in 2021. Yeah. And you know what? If it's not the same director, I'm pretty excited about. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's hope it's not. I just, yeah, it's. It, I think it was, uh, for the time, it was a pretty cool idea. Like, he had a kind of a uh, a classic Freddy vibe in mm. that kind of almost comical character. Yeah. Very strange. Absolutely. I just feel, my biggest problem with this is, is personal, and that is just, I feel like the pair of them, the brother and sister, could have just avoided the whole situation. Like, it's very admirable to worry about something. But maybe just call the police or the authorities or, you know, carry on where you're going. Maybe don't go investigate yourself. Definitely don't climb down any tubes that go into the ground. That you've seen a very scary looking man throw a suspiciously body shaped package Mm. covered in blood down there. I agree. The other thing that we need to address is car safety. Yes. Now, I am not, I'm not, I wasn't, when I had a car, I was not very good at keeping it tip top ship shape. But because of that, I was very aware that long distances in my car were not a good idea. That is true. If you're traveling cross country, don't travel in a car where the clutch and the gears don't work. 
Because if you get cornered by some sort of psychotic demon who's trying to eat your insides, that car is going <laughs> to let you down. And that's a problem. That is a problem. So think about demons the next time you get your car checked. Yeah, think if you're going to buy a car, think, <laughs> can I outrun some sort of demon in this car? That's the question. This demon is fast. He might have a vehicle. He might use his wings. Who knows? Yep. But can I outrun him? If I can, brilliant, get the car. If you're worried that it's not going to sustain that level of journey, then don't get the car. I'm with you on that. So what would you give this film out of five? Mm, three, I think. I think three is pretty fair. I think for nostalgia reasons, I want to give it a four. But for nostalgia reasons. Yeah. Because it really scared me as like a 12 year old. It's, it's te- like the chase bits are terrifying because I, th- I feel like someone that, you know, it took me a long time to become less of a timid driver. And I'm still quite timid. So to be in that situation would be quite horrifying. I don't feel like they react in the best way. I feel like they just keep going for way too long. Like mm, Just pull over. Yeah. That aspect works really well. I'm just not entirely sure the rest of it holds up amazingly. And exposition. I like a little bit of exposition sometimes. Which brings us to our stories this week. And we're not talking about the, the creature from Jeepers Creepers. There was there was no connection. Only that somebody mentioned it on the supergroup and I wanted to watch it again. I'm pretty sure it's made up lore as well. Like it's not. Definitely made anything. up lore. But we are going to talk about three stories today. Okay. And I am excited about them because I know that they are three stories that you have not heard before. And as you've heard at the top of this episode, this is kind of like a charity episode. We're trying to raise money for Ulamu. So the stories that you're going to hear today, some are from South Africa, some are from East and South African countries. And the little moral tales are from teenagers in Malawi who the tales have been sent to us by our friend Alva. So are you ready? Oh, I don't know because this is a whole opening a whole different can of spoop and I'm not sure I'm up for it. Malawi is a landlocked country in the southeast of Africa and one third of its area consists of water in the form of Lake Malawi. It is known as the warm heart of Africa because of the nature of the people that reside there. Malawi is a country of disparity. It is a land of plenty, with a rich tradition of agriculture, yet it remains one of the poorest countries in the world. It is a land of soaring temperatures in the south and cool, balmy climates in the north. It is a land of huge cities and tiny rural villages. It can be dry and arid, but also lush and wet. It has rolling shirelands, huge leafy mountains and the sprawling Lake Malawi. It is home to elephants and lions and all sorts of primates. But it is also home to something that is much, much darker. Among the stories told by villagers are those stories only spoken about in hushed whispers. Stories of experience and warning and stories of fear. Because right across East Africa there are stories of strange beasts man-hunting cryptids, ghosts, goblins and witchcraft. There are some stories, or rather some creatures, that seem to roam the countryside across the eastern countries of Africa. And one of those such creatures is the Tokolosh. Miriam had settled her daughters in for the night, and was herself finally getting to sit down in peace and watch some Nigerian movies on TV. It was a Tuesday night, and the day had been long and tiring, and this was the only time Miriam had to just do nothing. The film she was watching was vaguely entertaining, but it was the exact sort of mindlessness that she needed this evening. While she was watching, Miriam became aware of a strange sensation that was not caused by the events unfolding on the screen. A hot, prickling feeling was spreading across the back of her neck, and making the tiny hairs stand on end. Was she ill? Was she coming down with something? She stopped focusing on the television and began focusing on what was happening to her body. The hot prickly sensation was spreading and becoming more pronounced when she suddenly realised what it was. She was being watched. Miriam whipped around assuming that she was being spied upon by one of her girls but the sitting room was decidedly empty. There were no giggles, no footsteps scampering back down the hallway and no heads peeping around corners, but she knew that she was being watched. And she also instinctively knew that she was being watched by something that meant her harm. 
she mustered up the courage to go to her daughter's room. Perhaps it was them, and she decided that she would just check and see. But her daughters were settled for the night and peacefully beginning to slumber in their beds. She sat on the edge of her daughter's bed, quietly taking a moment to gather herself, but completely unable to shake the feeling that she was being watched. And then she heard it. Soft at first, but unmistakable. It was the sound of someone in the attic readjusting their weight on the creaky beams. She could tell it wasn't rodents. They had had mice up there last year, and the sound of their scuttling across the roof was nothing compared to the slow and deliberate movements that she was hearing now. She held her breath and stared up at the ceiling. Her children were soundly sleeping. Then suddenly whatever it was scuttled heavily from one side of the roof to the other. It definitely wasn't a small animal. Miriam was gripped with a sudden fear that this creature was completely aware of her movements but was also looking for something. Her eyes flashed momentarily to the entrance to the hallway where the trap door to the attic was and she knew in her heart that this creature was looking for a way down. Her mind raced and she made the split-second decision that whoever or whatever was in the ceiling was not coming down, no matter what. She launched herself off the bed and grabbed an old golf club that was perched against the doorframe. Whatever was in the ceiling matched her movements and bounded clumsily towards the trap door. Miriam waited beneath the trap door for the intruder to make its way down, but there was nothing, only a thick, heavy silence that hung in the air. She knew that whatever it was was poised on the other side of the door just like she was. In a moment of madness, she lifted the golf club and poked the door. It flapped open for a second, before slamming shut. Nothing. Feeling braver, she inched the trap door open. Still nothing. She opened it a bit more and from the darkness something grabbed the golf club and tried to yank it out of her hands. She somehow managed to hold on but her yelp of alarm alerted the children. She screamed at her daughter to blow the whistle to alert the community. There were intruders in their house. The daughter blew the whistle, long and sharp the shriek pierced the silence of the night. They could already hear the sounds of neighbours rustling outside and calling to one another. Miriam shook the golf club as hard as she could and eventually it was released and she hooked the club over the open trap door and tried to pull it shut. But whatever was in the attic wasn't ready to give up and was holding the trap door from the other side. The neighbours burst in and the trap door slammed shut. Miriam sobbed in a crumpled heap and told the neighbours that there was someone in the attic who had tried to get in. She told them the story and they all came to the conclusion that thieves were trying to get in through the attic. There had been an incident in a nearby village where thieves had resourcefully cut a hole in the attic wall and wormed their way into the house. Some men braved the darkness and searched with clubs and bats ready. But there was no one up there, and no sign that anyone had been up there. The police were called and arrived, They took statements from Miriam and her children and searched the attic. They concluded that there was no one there and there was no way that anyone could have entered without leaving a trace. The police and the neighbours left at 3.30am and Miriam and her children turned all the lights on in the house and huddled together in the one room. Miriam lay on the bed with her golf club tightly gripped in her hand. She looked over at her children and though they were huddled beneath their blankets, she knew that they too were also too frightened to sleep. After what seemed like hours, she began to drift into sleep, but a sharp rap made her sit bolt upright. Did she imagine it? No, there it was, a knocking on the trap door to the attic. Except they had left the trap door open, so whatever it was was trying to get her attention. 
She felt the hairs stand on the back of her neck again, and though she really didn't want to look around, the need to see what was making this noise was far greater. Although Miriam had a terrible feeling that she already knew what was lurking in her attic. She took a deep breath and turned to face whatever it was that so desperately wanted her attention. The dark hole in the ceiling was black and empty, but she felt the air escape from her lungs when a pair of eyes peeped over the edge and looked at her. It wasn't frightened. It didn't duck away when it saw her watching. Instead, it poked its head out further, Its face looked almost human, but not quite. It smiled an open-mouth smile, revealing sharp, pointed teeth and gums that were black as the night. With its mouth stuck open in a smile, she could see that the creature had no tongue and yet it managed to growl a curse word at her. She was suddenly filled with an incandescent rage at the disruption that this creature had caused her family that night and she flew from the bed, golf club in hand, ready to beat the creature senseless. But it scuttled away into the darkness of the attic. Again, Miriam alerted her neighbours and they readily agreed to check the attic again and again nothing was found. They stayed with her and again and again the women in the house witnessed the creature peer out of the attic but the men saw nothing. The next morning, perhaps for the first time ever, the children were desperate to get to school. Miriam knew that she was dealing with a tokolosh. Her neighbours knew it too, but they did not know how to get rid of it. The men searched the attic, They ripped out the roofing, but there was no sign of any intruder. Miriam procured some local herbs and asked the men to burn them in the attic, and for the first time the men both saw and heard the tokolosh. The shadow of something large crawling on all fours whipped past them and disappeared into the darkness of the attic, and then the police arrived, yet again. No one had called them, but they had something that would help Miriam. The police officers explained to Miriam that they had believed that she had a tokolosh the night before, but they did not want to frighten the children even more, and had returned with a man that they believed could help her. The man was accompanied by two other men and a woman, and he solemnly entered the house and asked the police to accompany him to the attic so that he could not be accused of any trickery. He wanted the police to see exactly what happened. He brought with him a mirror which he placed at the entrance of the attic. He completed a complex ritual involving maize and a chicken egg, and then he left. But nothing changed. Still, Miriam and her neighbours sat outside the house and listened as the tokolosh scurried around in the attic. Another neighbour arrived, and asked if he could perform a ritual that had been passed down from his mother. Miriam agreed. She was in trouble, and what choice did she have? She wanted this creature gone. The man completed a ritual in the house that consisted of Christian prayer and ancient techniques passed down from his mother. He was followed closely by Miriam and a huddle of neighbours who silently watched his every move. Suddenly there was a thud in the attic, as though someone had dropped a ton of sand, and a growl began to emanate. Some of the neighbours fled as the growl became so violent that the ceiling shook and then the house fell silent. The atmosphere changed and Miriam knew that the tokolosh was gone. So what was this creature that plagued Miriam's house? The tokolosh comes from Zulu and Kossa mythology and it is thought to be a mischievous and evil spirit. While the lore is primarily associated with South Africa, Tokolosh mythology has spread all over Eastern African countries too. One belief is that the Tokolosh can be summoned and controlled by dark witches and sent to wreak havoc on the lives of the intended victims. In the case of Miriam, which was a very real story, she is a Sangoma, which is a white witch, 
and it is believed that others who were jealous of her success sent the Tokolosh to torment her. They can be sent to terrorise people, to frighten them, and even to kill them. The Tokolosh descriptions seem to vary greatly from region to region, but they can be held responsible for any number of issues from livestock deaths to divorce, although there are very clear indications as to where the legend of the Tokolosh grew from being a mischievous imp to something far more sinister. Many centuries ago, Zulu and Kosa people were suffering from an epidemic. People were dying in their sleep, without any cause or explanation. Men, women and children would fall asleep and simply never wake up. There would be no sign of distress, of illness or injury. They would just be dead. A belief began to spring up that the small goblin creatures that were responsible for causing mischief could also have the power to kill people in their sleep. So people began to elevate their beds in order to stay out of reach of the Tokolosh, and the mysterious death stopped. What actually happened was that the people would traditionally sleep on a bed on the ground near to the fire to keep warm. As they were close to the ground and the fire, they simply did not get enough oxygen. The longer the fire burned, the less oxygen there was, and people were simply dying of oxygen starvation. When the beds were elevated, this stopped. But that didn't stop the Tokolosh. And to this day, many people still elevate their beds on bricks. Legends and lore still swirl and children are warned to be home before dark lest the Tokolosh get them. They are sometimes thought to be half animal and half human, mostly active at night, and feed off the dark energy that is created by harassing humans. The Tokolosh is so entrenched in the mythology of East African countries that President Hastings Banda, who was president of Malawi from 1964 to 1994, even claimed to have had problems with the Tokolosh at Sanjika Palace, one of the president's residents. President's residence. I know, what a what a combination of words to end on. It's a good combination of words. What's not good is I don't want to meet a Tokolosh. I don't want to meet one. Just before we go any further, so I, I looked this up and Tokolosh is just the most commonly used pronunciation, but there are lots of other pronunciations of Tokolosh. Also, Kasa is pronounced with that lovely click yeah. in in the word, so I can't do that. So I'm saying Casa, but just in case anybody uh, is annoyed by my pronunciation, I did my best. I don't like the image that you created of this thing. I mean, you didn't create it, obviously, the, the way it was described with the sharp teeth, missing tongue, black gums. Mm. No, no, no. Sounds very sort of evil. And those stories are rampant. They're really rampant yeah. in lots of communities. You know, it can be really simple things like food going missing. Oh, it's Tokolosh. Which are very explainable, like, yeah. you know, little hands wanting, wanting extra, but not wanting to ask. <laughs> and then there are other, like the Tokolosh can be used for really dark things. Like there was, I think as recently as 2011, there was a court case, uh, a murder case where the Tokolosh was, the person claimed that they were, it was a Tokolosh that had killed the victim. And there was another case where a person had killed their child thinking it was a Tokolosh. Whoa. That's darkness, isn't it? I know, it's really dark. Yeah. Really, really dark. There's like conversations about, you know, reanimation, about that some Tokolosh are actually zombies that are reanimated by dark witches. That oh, this really dark shit, like it's really scary. They sound very like demon-like, don't they? The descriptions, I guess, that the Western world puts on demons. It's that kind of darkness and creatures and sent to do things that, bad do you know what it reminded me of do you remember that kind of weird body horror that we watched where the fairies were in the forest and they were living like under the ground but the way that they were were the image of them where we think of fairies as being like little winged creatures whereas these were like grotesque yeah goblin like creatures I, i that's what i imagine when i think of the tokolosh what i found fascinating about it was the absolute extent of the effort that went into trying to get rid of it like they tried so many different things and you just don't want it to stay in your attic 
Like, you just don't want it in your house at all, do you? And it just, they got, you know, the police went off and tried something, brought someone back, neighbour tried something, eventually it went, but man, just so much effort, like so much effort for it, which means like, either it's really powerful or you just have to know the right way to deal with it. And neither of them is particularly good. <laughs> or there's a lot of chancers who are trying to make a book off exercising people's houses of tokolosh, do you know? Yeah, potentially. Like people are seeing a little cottage industry and they're like, oh, I can make some cash here. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just, there's just so much, isn't there? There's so much, so much effort to try and get it out. And uh, I hadn't really considered that it might be a, a little uh, side hustle. And a, quite a lucrative side hustle, it would seem. But I mean, there's, you know, people are very open about this. This isn't like... A, you know the way in, in some cultures you'd you'd feel like you'd be judged for speaking about stuff like that. This is a very accepted part of life. The the kind of the worrying thing about it, which I'm not going to go into too much detail um, about, but I'll leave a link to a really good video in the description of this episode, is that actually people prefer to blame the tokolosh for things than blame people in their own community. So if you've got a child who has an injury and it was a family member that did it, the family would bring the child and say it was a tokolosh that injured the child. Rather than have the fallout in the community, the tokolosh is also a creature that you can blame things on because it's it's such a wide-ranging mythology in terms of what it has the ability to do. I'm also a little bit freaked out by the way that it seems to be used as a weapon by some people as well. Yeah. Uh, you don't like someone, you just you know, conjure a tokolosh and send it down the road apparently they don't exist independently like they can only exist while being controlled by a witch Mm, no that's not good (laughs) that's not good and because they're only they can only be raised with dark intentions they can only do bad things oh i know it also feels like one of those things that once you've raised it you kind of just have to let it get on with it i know you said that some people believe that they're controlled by others but it sounded very too chaotic to me. Like it just sounded like it was a, like a thing, like an entity that was just living there, doing its own stuff. I hate the idea of peeping. We've spoken about creepy peepers. There's lots of peeping going on, lots of attention-seeking behaviour. Just designed to scare you. Just get out of my house. Like there was nothing about it that was trying to hurt that woman. It was just there to to scare her. That was it. This is going to make me sound really um, stupid, but if you haven't got the power to conjure something that's going to do real harm, like causing that amount of mental stress and worry and fear takes its toll on your intended victim just as much. Oh, I'd that's say, harm in, in itself. Yeah. And if you if you say if you know uh, this this other witch is really jealous of me and I know they've sent this tokolosh to get me, like you are going to go, well, they're obviously really powerful. So if this is only a fraction of what they can do, then fuck that shit. I'm just going to pack up all of my stuff, all my witchy bits, and I'm going to move elsewhere because this is not good. I feel like if it was you in that situation, you'd be like, well, that's all they can do. So I'm just going to antagonize a little bit more. Yeah, and then I'd wish it all upon myself and then I'd be crying, (laughs) trying to fight off Tokolosh in the middle of the night. No, no, I don't need that. Before we go on to our next story, we're going to do two things. I've got two little moral tales that have come from teenagers in Malawi and then we're going to take a little break before we go on to our next story like a little ad break okay so our first story comes from Elita Chitseko and this story was told to her by her grandmother a long time ago there were animals in the bush lion elephant hare tortoise and cheetah lion was the chief and he owned many gardens where he planted some vegetables and some bananas. When Lion was inside his house, the other animals planned to go into the garden to steal some bananas, but when they broke in, they were met by a big man with big boots. When the animals saw the man, they started crying. Please don't do anything to us. We are here because of hunger. But the man didn't listen and started to chase them from the garden. Startled, the animals tried to run away in different directions. He spotted Hare hiding behind the trees, gripped with fear, as he knew the man was going to beat him. Hare screamed, Please, please leave me. I won't do it again. I won't come here again. I will make my garden like yours. The man replied, Don't do this again. It is not good for you. And the moral of the story is, When you steal things, it's hazardous, and people might beat you. 
a very fair moral assumption. Yes, a, yes. a good moral lesson learned. No more stealing from Lions Gardens for us. No, absolutely. I do. I am intrigued by who the big man was, though. Whatever. He was clearly a very big man yeah. if he was going to beat all those animals. Yeah. If he was going to beat up an elephant, very yeah. big man. And and doesn't, like, the lion tend into a vegetable patch give it a slightly softer edge yeah, it does. than we used to? Yeah, more wholesome. <laughs> yeah. More woke. Yeah. And our second moral tale comes from Amos. There were many animals in the world, but they did not have enough water to sustain life. One day, the chief lion called a meeting for all of the animals to discuss how they would find water. All of the animals agreed that they should dig a well together for water. The next day, all of the animals went to work on making the well, but Hare said that he did not want to help. The chief said that anyone who did not take part in building the well would not be allowed to drink the water. Finally, the animals finished digging the well. But there were still limited amounts of water, so everyone agreed that there should be a guard at the well. The first night, Hyena agreed to be the guard. That night, Hare came and tricked Hyena with some meat, so that he could drink from the well while Hyena was not looking. The second night, Tortoise agreed to be the guard, and he sat behind the well. He was so slow and still that he looked like a stone. Hare did not see Tortoise and when he came to drink from the well, he was caught by the silent guard. The next morning, the chief judged the hare, and all of the animals punished him. And the moral of the story is, if you want rewards, you have to do the work. Again, seems fairly reasonable moral assessment of life there. Yes, it absolutely (laughs) is. So we're going to take a little break before we start the next story so if you want to grab yourself a drink I'm currently having a Prosecco what are you having? Uh, I'm drinking Duopolis by a brew dog and it's very nice and we'll be back in a second for another story bye the region of Doha was gripped in terror People were fleeing their houses, desperately seeking the comfort and safety of crowds. 4,000 people huddled together in frightened whispering groups in a locked town hall, while armed guards patrolled the outdoors. Three people were dead, and 16 were seriously injured, sustaining life-altering injuries. These were not pleasant. Some had legs ripped off, and others had lost ears, noses and arms. Something was seriously wrong in the community. It began in 2003, in early March, and the region of Doha was a peaceful, mountainous region, consisting of many small villages. This wasn't the first time that the village had been attacked by a mysterious beast, and they knew better than to hang around and hope for the best. The previous August, 20 people had been maimed and five were killed, resulting in the paramilitary being drafted in to hunt what they believed to be a rabid hyena. The villagers were not so convinced. Those who had seen the creatures talked of long, human-like back legs, not the short, underdeveloped legs and sloping back of a hyena. And besides, these people knew what a hyena looked like, and they knew their own natural predators, and many of them believed that this wasn't natural. This creature was elusive and impossible to hunt. Experienced hunters had tried, and they still couldn't track the thing down, and managed to evade them completely. More alarming was the way in which it killed. Of the nine people that perished at the hands of this creature, they all had had their skulls crushed and their organs devoured. The first time the paramilitary claimed to have killed a rabid hyena, but no one had seen the body. And this time the killings were happening in the same way. But there was something more disturbing. Those who were left alive were left alive by choice. The creature simply attacked them savagely and then left. With the surviving victims solemnly asserting that the creature that attacked them was not a hyena. Parks and Wildlife Officer Leonard Sifu told various news outlets that he believed the creature to be a rabid hyena, but also admitted on record that he found it very strange that experienced villagers had not been able to track and kill a rabid animal. 
they were not known for their elusiveness. And the animal was never found. What in the dickens is going on there? Before we go any further, if you can hear rumbling, it's because Bimmy has decided to sit on Dan's knee and is purring very aggressively. (laughs) I apologise. I just don't even know where to start with that. You know, it sounds like, although obviously it's not because the villagers are very, as you quite rightly pointed out in your story, they know what a hyena is. This isn't something that's un you know, unseen within that community. Yeah, this is the thing about these stories yeah. is when people go, oh, it's the, they, mis- they mistook a hyena for some... They know what a hyena is. They yeah. fucking know... They know what a lion is. Yeah. They know what pre- their predators are. Like, come on, give them a bit more credit than that. It's a slightly tamer version of saying the pyramids were built by aliens, isn't it? It's, it's that kind of sort of logic. But it, it's reminiscent of, and not in, the, not in the way that it was mistaken for anything else, but in the early sort of... I want to say... 30s or 40s when they were building the railway through Savo National Park they had uh, a period of time where the lions got a taste for human meat and so they were just ruthlessly attacking the workers um, and it just reminded me of that story it's nothing like it but it just reminded me of that story where there's just that there's just a rampaging beast just killing but you can understand that as well because if those if if suddenly the lions have an abundance of new people who were not used to lions that is like a hunter's dream yeah. as in or a predator's yeah. dream rather but i just don't i don't believe i mean maybe it was a rabbit hyena like what do i know but these people would know what a hyena is and a hyena that is rabbit is going to be relatively easy to catch because they're not going to be trying to evasive and subtle the way rabies work is it is it it attacks so much of the brain that they're not they don't think in the same way that they do would naturally so they, there's no self-preservation about rabies they just they're rabid like they wouldn't just stop and wander back off again like that's not how it works so i'm with you on this 100 percent. i wasn't saying uh, and this isn't me challenging you but i wasn't saying that it reminded me of that story because oh, you know what, that's I know. what i thought it's yeah. just i thought that's just an interesting anecdote that it has that kind of where it just terrorizes all the people in the area and actually that to bring people in to put the lines down unfortunately but and those four thousand people that left now this story came from the bbc like this wasn't a uh like a, a random kind of lore story this was a real reported case at the time and the bbc did a follow-up when the people eventually went back to their homes they were struggling because those four thousand people had left their villages without food without clothes they Mm. left without everything and suddenly they were all in this town hall and had to be provided for so it was a real scramble to try and hunt this animal because the people were like we're not going back we're not we're not going back until you kill this thing and if you can't provide if you've got no choice but to go and try and hunt it haven't you really yeah i just Um, thought it was an interesting story it's also interesting the sort of not senseless but almost the the sort of methodical picking and choosing about who it actually finishes off as well it seems like you know if it was an animal that had the taste for something it would kill and eat on most occasions do you know what i mean like it's not unless it was rabid but then again it would be quite easy to hunt down i just I'm, it just sounds paranormal to me and i know that i say that about everything because that's who i am <laughs> but i feel like this one <laughs> Mr. <they're> paranormal <laughs> over there yeah but i feel like uh i feel like there might be a f- quite a few more people agreeing with me on this one because it just doesn't make sense from my sort of understanding of wildlife, which is probably not that good. I'm no David Attenborough, but you know what? Do you know what I mean? It just doesn't. It doesn't sound right to me. No, and there was no great history of hyenas attacking these people. So there was these two isolated incidents where there were, I think it was like six, whatever, August. Yes, yeah, six months apart. I had to count on my fingers there. <laughs> there were those two isolated incidents, six months apart, where the attacks happened in the exact same way both times. A rabbit, like the same rabbit animal, would have been dead in six mm. months. It wouldn't have survived that long with the way that rabies works to, to to break down the body. But again, if these people had like a history of rabbit hyenas, like it wouldn't have just happened in two no. six-month periods. Like they would have experienced it before. They would know what rabbit animals were like. Yep. And they know what a hyena looks like. And I, and I think like, again... This is sort of, you know, second grade animal knowledge here. <laughs> but I feel like when a predator finds a source of food, it doesn't just go twice in six months. It returns to the well when it needs to eat because it's the guaranteed food source. So you'd think it would be back quicker. Yeah, 
It would. It wouldn't just go, oh, my time is up here now. I've freaked them out enough. I'm going to fuck off now for a couple of months and then I'll be back. They won't know what hit them. It doesn't work like that in the animal kingdom. So are we thinking sort of like a, loop, a Lupin-esque I don't know. Creature? Because they said it had really long back legs. Because it, it, to me, it was like a step on from skinwalker lore. You know, yeah. the way we think about skinwalkers, but they don't, we don't really hear stories of them particularly harming people. No. But we see them as being these big wolfish, kind of weirdly human creatures. I don't know. And it is the complete reverse shape of a hyena, as you said in your story as well, because the hyena has, high, has long front legs and stumpy back legs. So it's, the back goes one way. If you've got really long back legs, your back goes the other direction. <laughs> yeah, and, and hyenas are really distinctive yeah. for that. It's not like you could mistake it. They have that sloped back. I looked up loads of pictures of hyenas. Just, just as an aside, FYI. they are my favourite big cat, even though they're technically not a cat. But hey, they're, they're my favourite predator. They're pretty savage. They are. I, I like them. I like. I can relate to that sort of scavenger mentality, I think. <laughs> Did you know there's a, a, a group of people that live in a village somewhere like youtube them it's incredibly fascinating but they live alongside hyenas and they feed the hyenas every night i feel like it was um an attenborough series i think it was an attenborough series if you get the chance like google or youtube like uh, villagers live with hyenas and they're wild hyenas but they have this sort of unspoken mm, i want to say ethiopia oh is it ethiopia maybe mm. it was Mm. they have like an unspoken agreement where the yeah. hyenas don't attack the people and the people feed them every night yep. so cool it was very cool very cool but definitely hunt that out um and if you come across a creature that has really long black legs maybe just try and run just be yeah really quiet or be really still maybe be like a t-rex where it just yeah. can't see if you're really still to be fair a t-rex does have really long back legs they do and really short yeah. front legs and they have a tenacity and they like to eat people. Yeah. And they're bizarrely hard to take down for some reason, despite the fact that they're, oh, that they're so massive. Yeah. Hmm. I've got two more moral stories for you before we go on to our last I'm story. I'm loving the moral stories. I'm loving them. So they're both hyena based. Even better. And the first one came from Prince Mponda, who, and this is, these, these were his words, sat on the floor around the fire one night after supper when the stars and moon were bright in the sky and listened to his grandmother who told this story to give him advice for life. A long time ago, Hyena went to Hare's house, but Hare was not home. He knocked on Hare's door, but there was no answer, so before he returned to his own house, he wrote a note on the ground that said, Hello, my friend. I came to your house, but you were not home. I was hoping to borrow a little money from you to start a business in my house. I want to sell maize to various people. I hope you can help me. Thank you, your friend Hyena. At this moment, Hare returned home, but first went to the garden to harvest her crops. When she read the message from Hyena, she knew she must help, as she considered that she could be poor in the future and may need money from her friends. Hyena received money from Hare and Tortoise and felt so happy. This built a strong relationship and trust between the animals. The moral of the story... Help those in need whenever they ask, no matter how much you have. Love it. Also feel like this is the first time Hare is represented in a good way. Yes. Hare's been a bit of a do. I think Hare gets a bit of a bit of a bad rap in these moral tales. I'm not entirely sure what word, what do means, but I feel like he is a bit of a do. But you went there. I didn't yep. even question it. I was just like, okay. Hare has been a bit of a do in the other two stories. In this one, she makes a good choice. And our second moral tale is called, also called The Hare and the Hyena, which is from Kondwani, MD. A long time ago, there were two good friends, Hare and Hyena. Hare had a wife and children, and Hyena also had a wife and three children. They all had a farm for cultivating crops, but there was one difference between Hare and Hyena. Hare was a caring farmer, because after he cultivated a large farm of crops, he would sell them to buy clothes for his family, who always looked clean as a result. Hyena was a lazy farmer, and his family was very jealous of Hare and his family. One day, Hyena asked Hare for food, but Hare refused as he did not have enough. Hyena got more and more angry and demanded that Hare share his food. Hare finally agreed, but said, I will give you food from my farm, but you must carry me as I am tired, and on the way we must pass by your house. The hyena agreed, and they started their journey. On the way, Hare asked hyena to hand him a stick as he wanted to scratch his back. Hyena handed Hare a stick and continued to carry him on his back. When they arrived at hyena's house, 
Hare shouted to Hyena's wife. Look at this. Hyena is now one of my workers and this is the stick I used to beat his back. Hyena was so embarrassed and filled with shame that he now only walks outside at night time. And the moral of the story is, hard work is honourable. I like it. I, I was feeling very, you know, sort of sorry for Hare for a lot of that story. And again, we're back to Hare being a dickhead. Yeah. Well, just, I get the point of it. And, you know, actually, maybe he needed bringing down to earth. And that's why they're nocturnal then, I guess, hyenas. Because he was shamed by Hare for being a lazy worker. And they're still lazy because they, um, they're scavengers, aren't they? Hyenas? Yeah. Don't talk about them like that, okay? <laughs> hyenas are the best. I like them. I'm just saying. I read a thing once, well, I think I read a thing that said that hyenas can chew glass. Like, that's how tough their mouths are because they are scavengers and they need to, like, chew bone and stuff. It's probably not true, but I, I'm i just going to tell you. Like, it is true. They can I, chew glass. I mean, I can chew gl- glass when I'm drunk. Oh, no, I've seen you do that too many times. It's awful. <laughs> I've got one more story for you today. Okay. And our final story is the Rua incident. Ooh. Now, this is not a a story from Malawi. It's actually a story from Zimbabwe, which is like two countries south of Malawi. Been looking at a map. Yeah, been looking at a map. (laughs) I had to make sure that everything was in the right place. You know what I'm like with geography. I didn't even... I'm not even going to... That's really embarrassing. I'm not going to finish that sentence. (laughs) It was the afternoon of the 16th of September, 1994. And at the aerial school in the rural farming community of Rua, Zimbabwe... The children were having their break. The air was swollen with the tinkling, joyous play of 62 children. They ran and skipped and jumped, played games and sang songs, all the while the staff took advantage of the sunshine and had their staff meeting outdoors. They cast regular looks at the playing children to make sure there were no scuffed knees or erupting arguments. What the teachers failed to notice was that a portion of the cries of merriment had turned to gasps as the children pointed and shouted, Look! Look! A bright flash had illuminated the sky, and the children watched as three silvery disc-shaped objects sliced through the sky approaching the school. The back of the playground was surrounded by a high chain-link fence, which separated the children from an overgrown wilderness of shrubs and wild, gnarled trees. The children watched as the crafts vanished and reappeared multiple times as though teleporting through the air, before one eventually descended into the overgrowth beyond the chain link. The children marvelled at the absolute silence of the objects. They made no rattling engine noises like helicopters and planes, and they emitted beautiful streaks of green, orange and yellow light behind them. The children pressed their faces against the fence, holding on to the metal for dear life to try and get a glimpse of the craft that had descended. It was there, hovering above the weeds and it pulsated in the afternoon sunlight. The children continued to watch, but with growing alarm, as the craft opened and two beings emerged. They were thin, long and slender, with huge almond-shaped insect-like eyes. This was too much for some of the younger children, who were now backing away slowly and some were beginning to cry. What had started out as awe had now turned to terror at the realisation that what they were seeing was definitely not human. A number of the older children who stayed pressed against the fence in shock reported that they saw images flash inside their brain, images that they did not understand and had never seen before, images of the environment, images of technology, that were beyond their understanding. The teachers had begun to notice that something was wrong and were rushing towards the fence to aid the crying children. The creature simply vanished into thin air and the craft ascended into the sky. The children were in various states of shock. Some were crying. Some were garbling excitedly about these creatures. Others were completely silent. The teachers at first thought that the children were making up wild stories. But when they continued to cry and some continued to babble, the teachers began to grow concerned. In a stroke of ingenuity, they decided to separate the children and encourage them to draw what had happened. Every single child drew a version of the same creatures, 
and drew a version of the same craft. Long, grey, limmy beings with huge black eyes. This story, like many strange stories, grew tendrils and crept into the local community and then the local news and then international news and caught the eye of Dr. John E. Mack. Mack was a Harvard psychiatrist and a Cambridge physician and made the decision to travel to Zimbabwe to meet these children. Off he went and he spent days and days interviewing each of them and discussing their drawings with them and he came to an alarming conclusion. They were telling the truth. He didn't know what had happened, but what he did know was that these children wholeheartedly believed what they had saw. They weren't making this up. And even more alarmingly was that he realised that the vast majority of these rural farming children had never heard of UFOs or flying saucers or grey aliens. Mac concluded that there was something larger afoot. He explicitly said that he was not advocating for the existence of grey aliens, but rather that there may be explanations for some events that were not psychological in nature. The case nearly ruined Mac's career. He was even investigated by the medical board in order to ascertain as to whether or not he was fit to practice medicine. He was found to be perfectly fit and capable and had the right to study whatever he wanted to study. What is even more interesting about this case is that the children involved are now adults and they still, to this day, stand by everything they claimed to have seen when they were children. I love stories like this, you know I do. Have you ever heard this story before? No, I haven't, but I feel like I feel like kids drawing things is is a good way of rooting out fabrication because you would notice too much of a variation if they were all creative because we know our kids are we both work with kids of varying different ages have kids in our family of various different ages things get exaggerated very quickly if it was too created to get all of them drawing the same thing would be too hard like it's hard enough if you're a teacher and you ask them to all draw the same thing to get same so the fact that they've all drawn a very similar version of something in separate areas as well so they've been taken away and asked to draw it it's just too perfect there will always be one kid as well if you're making up a story or if kids are lying right as as someone who's worked with kids for a very long time somebody always takes it too far so one kid will always take the lie too far and they'll be like and as well as that they the aliens McDonald's. <laughs> left a pot of gold and I'm a millionaire <laughs> and I am an alien. And they're always, they're always, <laughs> and the, the bigger group of kids, the bigger group of kids you have, there will always be a kid that is, if it is a mass lie, will feel too guilty about it and will tell you the truth. Me. Yes. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to do it. I'd be like, I'm really sorry we made it all up. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, I, I just think it's incredible. I just think it's incredible. I, it would be, and I, I know this isn't the case, but it would be highly amusing to me if it turned out that they'd all watch like War of the Worlds as part of a class project. And, <laughs> and the teacher who did it was like, oh God, I was really hungover that day. Maybe I just shouldn't admit it. Oh shit, just don't say anything. But, and I can, like, I really can testify. Like, and I taught secondary school children as did you. Even with secondary school children, you can be like, okay, uh, this is exactly what we're going to do. I'm going to explain it to you 7,000 times. There will always still be children who are like, hmm. sorry, what? Yep. Where is it? So you, I would find it really hard to believe that these children orchestrated a lie of that magnitude that they all consistently understood and reproduced. I and, just don't think it's possible. And let's just face it, if this is a lie and they did do that, kudos to them. They deserve to be believed. If Brilliant. they got away with it. And they tricked a top to psychiatrist. That level, yeah, to that level. Then you know what? I don't care if it's false. If they fabricated it and they were able to pull it off in that style... <laughs> and really, it's really like there. I read some like extracts from this guy because th- this guy, Doctor Mac, he also studied cases of alien abduction, and he he just said like, I'm not saying these people are being abducted, but I'm saying we need to investigate what people are saying. Like we need to have a conversation about it. You can't just ignore everything and say, oh, those people are just 
insane because that's not how it works so when he went to Zimbabwe he went because he thought this is a really interesting case of like mass hysteria or like a mass delusion or whatever and then he went hang on a second these children really believe what they saw we need to re-evaluate how we address these issues and maybe something did happen and and he specifically was like I'm not saying that it was grey aliens in a spaceship But what I am saying is that we need another boundary to understand this within rather than just dismissing it. Oh my God, he was roasted for it. Uh, Yeah, roasted. But do you know what? Fair play to him because he didn't say owls. It would have been too easy. (laughs) It's well known in Zimbabwe that owls fly crafts because who needs wings anymore? Who needs them? It's such an old, outdated form of transport. (laughs) Wings, not for us. Thank you very much. But And the kids, they all described this situation as being like when they first saw the crafts they were just fascinated and they were like wow because mm. they were beautiful and they were shiny and they didn't have any concept that it might be anything dangerous it was only when the creatures came out that they were like uh oh this might not be very good but it's a very gen- genuine reaction of a group of children because you got some children that backed away and came back really scared and frightened and then you got some kids that came back babbling full of the joys so excited about what they'd seen and that is so very typical of a group of kids reacting to something yeah it's just a really i thought if we're gonna do a demon or some sort of like witchcraft we're gonna do a cryptid we're gonna have to do a ufo story as well and that story is one of the most famous ufo stories because there has never been an explanation for it Mm. you know the way usually and i think it was when we did a, a patreon episode with my friend rowana who is a psychologist and she said that 93% or something of cases of people seeing crafts in the sky are explainable whether it's a military craft whatever it is but this nobody really had an explanation for it and I think there was a documentary made about it relatively recently with all the kids that are now adults amazing Mm. amazing stuff I can't believe I have not heard of this I feel a bit ashamed yeah it's a really good one it's an interesting one I think I first heard of it on the Not For Girls podcast they talked about it and I I listened to the story. I remember I was out running listening to the story and I was like, I hate this. I hate this so much <laughs> because there were, I didn't include this bit because there they were kind of, I think it might have been added later, but there were some reports that the creatures, whatever they were, had long black hair, which made me think were they wearing like cloaks rather mm. than long black hair. But anyway, that was added much later in the story. So I don't know how accurate it is for the time. But if you Google the Rua, it's R-U-W-A incident and look for the pictures. You can still see the pictures of the children drew of the oh, aliens. Oh, that is just so creepy yet and exciting because I'm not creeped out by aliens that much, really. They are <laughs> creepy pictures. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, even, I would imagine even as somebody who's not freaked out by aliens, they are still creepy pictures. Yeah, because they're drawn by kids. They're drawn by <laughs> kids. And I don't know, like, and those kids that, like, this psychiatrist was like, shit, these children don't actually even know like their their concept of aliens is completely removed from what they're describing. So they didn't look and think, oh, I'm seeing aliens. They just didn't know what was happening. And they thankfully didn't think, oh, look, I'm seeing owls either. Um, Very true. Yeah. I better not mistake that creature. That's definitely an owl for something else. <laughs> I've got one more moral tale for yes, you. Yes, get in. Today, before we finish up this episode. And I just thank you for listening. I know this has been a really long one. Um, I hope that you've been able to have a drink while you've been listening and I hope that you've enjoyed these stories. They're a little bit little bit out there today, but I thought, you know what? We're going to try and find some stories that people may not have heard of. And if you can donate to Ulamu, which means respect, by the way, mm. just in case anybody's wondering, um, then all the links will be in the description, but I'll also put them all over social media this week. And you have three weeks to donate. It doesn't matter if it's one pound or a hundred pounds or whatever, if you donate and include RLGS in your donation. So put your name, RLGS. Um, at least we know that you're donating for that reason. You can have the opportunity to win a merch item of your choice. And I mean, we have shower curtains. Yeah, you can there get tiny, tiny bim shower curtains if that's that's your jam. Whatever you want, you can <laughs> have it. <laughs> the reason that we're asking for RLGS is obviously because the GoFundMe is... A public one rather than yes. specifically for us so that's why you need to put that in because there's obviously lots of people donating to them that don't even know who we are yes so <laughs> if you don't put rlgs i'm not going to know yeah. so you have to put your name 
and then like a dash or LGS or whatever so that we can see, okay, that person is RLGS so that person is going into the draw. Otherwise, we're not going to know. If you choose to do it anonymously, that's all. You, you brilliant, amazing. Thank you for donating. But if you want to be in the draw, you have to put RLGS. You know that we're going to accidentally include Richard Langdon, Jeffrey Sutcliffe by accident, don't you? When he abbreviates his name to RLGS oh, yeah. and we just go, oh, yeah, must be him. Just random people are going to be thrown into this. And they'll be like, I don't want an RLGS hoodie. I have no idea who you are. So our final moral tale today comes from Pemfo Masamba. A long time ago, there were three children in a Chumba village. Their names were Tamala, Hanif and Mary. The three children had different behaviour because they had different parents. Mary had bad behaviour, but Tamala and Hanif were full of empathy, love and honesty. One day the children were going to collect firewood in the forest. On the way the children met an old woman who was carrying a bundle of firewood. Mary started to laugh when she saw the old woman, but the other children were mannerly and behaved themselves. The old woman then asked Mary why she was laughing, but Mary did not answer, showing more bad behaviour. Moral of the story. Don't laugh at others, because it will make them feel sad and stressed. Dang right. What a good way to end this episode. And if you enjoyed this week's episode, you can find everything that you need to know about us on reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. You can submit your own spooky stories to reallifeghoststoriespodcast.gmail.com. And if you want to donate, you can find the link to the GoFundMe in the description of this episode. And on that note, we shall see you next week. Bye. Bye.